We talked about gratitude last week. The Bible is filled with encouragement and calling to be grateful people. And actually, gratitude uh, is part of how we're wired as human beings. I, I touched on that at the end of last week, that we are made, our, our joy and our happiness actually comes with being grateful people. And I thought it was interesting, I read this this week, this is uh, in an article called Neuroscience Reveals. Gratitude literally rewires your brain to be happier, okay? Uh, gratitude activates the hypothalamus as well with downstream effects on metabolism, stress, and various behaviors. The hypothalamus is located at the base of the brain and regulates hormones responsible for many critical functions such as body temperature, emotional responses, and survival functions like appetite and sleep. One of the neurochemicals associated with the, with the parts of the brain affected by gratitude is dopamine, a pleasure hormone. The positive influence of gratitude on mental health continues past a particular event if the motion, emotion is relived. It's like enjoying something over and over and over and over again, which sets off the chemicals in your body to actually be happier. So God has actually wired us in such a way as human beings that we're meant to be grateful. And we talked about last week how you can't just sort of make yourself grateful. You just can't snap your finger and say, I want to be grateful now. Uh, you got to actually sort of think about things that God has provided Think about the blessings in your life. You count your blessings and you sort of mull them over and, and thank God for them. And that sort of makes you become more grateful, changes you, your emotion, to that of gratitude. But one of the things I want to touch on, I think that's important as we look at Psalm 100, is that gratitude always has an object. In other words, we're not just grateful in general, uh, grateful to the universe or grateful... Uh, to some force out there, to whom are we grateful? And in the Bible, that's a pretty easy question to answer. We are called to be grateful to God. He's the object. He's the direction of our gratitude. He's the one who provides everything good. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above, uh, the Father of heavenly lights in the book of James. We're grateful to God. So this season of thanksgiving, I want to call us as a church and as individuals to be grateful uh, to God. Not just this time of year, of course, but it's a good reminder. Psalm 100 talks about gratitude. Short psalm, actually very similar to Psalm 95. Uh, I told you that throughout church history, Psalm 95 was called the Venite, uh, the come. Come and worship, come and be joyful, come and give thanks. Uh, psalm 100 is called the Jubilate, or the Jubilate, depending on your pronunciation there. Uh, celebrate, the celebration psalm. And it's only five verses long. In Psalm 100, we read this, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. We give thanks to 
the Lord. There should be an outline in your bulletin if you want to grab that and take a look and sort of see where we're going uh, as, as uh, uh, in the sermon here in Psalm 100. Give thanks all the earth in verses 1 and 2. Give thanks in his temple, three, four, uh, the first part of verse 4, and then give thanks for his love. And I've capitalized L-O-V-E uh, for a reason. And we'll see in just a bit, as, as Mike already touched on, with the steadfast love of the Lord. But look first at verses 1 and 2. Uh, this is a psalm for giving thanks. Uh, if you need it to be clearer, uh, the actual the author of the psalm put it right in there. Psalm for giving thanks. And he calls us here to make a joyful noise. And we oftentimes use that as a joke, right? If you can't sing and you've got a bad voice, well, make a joyful noise. Just go ahead and sing. But really the point of it is to say to all of God's people, join in in singing. Join in in praising and in worshiping him. Serve the Lord with gladness, and then it says, come into his presence with singing. And the connection between song and worship is all over the Bible, by the way. Uh, yes, worship is, goes beyond merely singing. In fact, we can worship when we're doing anything, right? We can worship all day long. We can worship as we're eating lunch. We can worship as we're standing there watching the, the Santa parade. For those who may be going to that, you can worship as you're watching television, watching a movie, watching um, a show. I went to see a, a play last night. Um, the, the local sort of theater group uh, asked to use our parking lot here, and then they, they had their play, um, The Music Man, right over at City Hall. And as a little fringe benefit, they said, if any of the staff want to come, we'll let you in for free. So I took my wife and my daughter, and we went and, and in the midst of, of watching The Music Man. Uh, it was an opportunity for me to think about the Lord and draw my attention there and to worship. We can worship anytime. <laughs> but there is a strong connection and a necessary connection between worship and song. And we sing specifically, as he says here, with gladness and with joy. But I want to focus on a little phrase in verse 1 where he says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. All the earth. <laughs> uh, much, if you know your Bibles, much of the Old Testament, of course, is geared specifically to Israel. But here, he recognizes that the calling towards praise and worship and gratitude goes beyond more than just one specific nation. That all people throughout the whole earth who are created by God and made in his image and wired in such a way that they are called out to praise. The whole earth. I mean, think about it, friends. The earth is a big place. <laughs> There's a lot of people on this earth. Uh, he's not saying this is just merely for one nation. In, perhaps in the psalmist's mind, when he says all the earth, he has a, in mind here the Assyrians, maybe the Egyptians, maybe the sea peoples. Uh, but he doesn't even understand how big the earth really is and how vast and how many people and how many different cultures there really are throughout the world as he even writes this. Uh, did you know that in this world there are 7.7 .7 billion people? That's a lot of people on this planet. There are currently 195 countries in the world, um, but that doesn't really speak to how many people because a country could be multiple millions and millions or, uh, or even billions of people like China and India, or it could be merely a few million. So that doesn't quite give it away. How about people groups? There are 16,543 people groups, according to the Joshua Project. By the way, 
over 40% of them have never actually heard the name Jesus. So there's still a big job to do. There are 6,500 spoken languages in the world. And uh, how many people are on Facebook? Good, about half. There are 2.45 billion active Facebook accounts in the world. Do you know that? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of uh, Facebook accounts. I remember you know, doing mission work and people who are living literally you know, in very third world uh, conditions still have a smartphone and still have a Facebook account. It's the strangest thing. Everywhere you go, people are connected. The calling here, friends, is that the whole earth would sing and praise the Lord. What does this mean for us? One thing this means for us is our calling to worship the Lord isn't limited to just us. God is not satisfied with just having the people who are currently in this world right now worshiping, uh, worshiping. He wants to see it spread to the ends of the earth. I like the way John Piper puts it. The reason why missions exists is because worship doesn't. <laughs> there, are, there are parts of this world, as we said, over 40% of those people groups, who still don't worship the Lord, who is their creator, who made them in his own image, whom he loves. And so what's the, the job? What are we supposed to do? Go reach them. <laughs> Support our missionaries and send them out so that these people would know God and worship him. The calling to worship is for the whole earth. I would also just make a, another sort of application for us, and that is that worship should be diverse. Uh, I think there's nothing that's more antithetical, I think, than to the, the spirit of worship that he's getting at here than for us to be sort of provincial about our worship. As if we have it all right, this is how you worship, and if you don't worship this way, you're kind of doing it wrong. <laughs> Uh, sorry, but the world is too big and too diverse, and there are too many cultures and languages and styles for that to be the case. The picture on the screen there is uh, from the country of Nepal, and you see all the beautiful color uh, and, and dress and this sort of dance, and the, the, the music is very specific, the style to their culture. And I'm sure Japan is, is similar. There's a Japanese style to the worship of these Japanese Christians. Friends, there's no one right, specific way in which we're called uh, to worship. Friends, in fact, I would even say, if I could be a little stronger, if you say that if, if you're not doing it the way I like to worship, then I'm not going to join in. <laughs> I think you've misunderstood worship. You've made worship about yourself uh, when worship is really supposed to be about God. God is beautiful and diverse. Think of where worship is heading. It's heading, as we see in the book of Revelation to every tongue and tribe and nation joined together, focused where? On the lamb who was slain and the one sitting on the throne and praising him. And I think, friends, we're going to be surprised at the beauty of the diversity of heaven. Worship is for all the earth. Seemingly contradictory <laughs> is where he goes from there. Uh, we give thanks all the, to all the earth. We give thanks in his temple. Look what he says in verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. Uh, he's the creator. He is the one true and only God. Israel didn't just claim that their God was one God among the many gods of the world. Other nations had no problem with that. Yeah, this is our God. Uh, you know, uh, whatever. Molech is our God. 
other, other nations have their own gods. No, Israel said, no, we, have, we worship God, and he's the only God. He's actually the creator, and all other gods are mere idols. They're mere statues. They mean nothing. There's only one God. Know that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. It's he who made us. We talked about this in Psalm 95. He's the creator. We're his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. God has a specific and direct relationship with us as his people. But look at verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Those gates would be the gates of the temple in Jerusalem. His courts with praise. The whole temple was sort of uh, set up, divided by these various courts. Uh, It got even more and more complex as the temple changed over time. The first temple, Solomon's temple, had... Uh, it was much more simple. It had the outer court. That was where the Gentiles could come and they could pray. And had the inner court, where only the priests were allowed to go. And then inside the inner court was the holy place. Uh, inside the holy place was a small room, like more like a closet, which was the Holy of Holies, where no one was allowed to go, except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. Herod's temple, which was much bigger, we'll talk about that in just a second, the development, had the court of the Gentiles, it had the court of the women, meaning Jewish women, had the court of the Israelites, meaning only Jewish men, uh, the court of the priests, then it had the temple court, and inside the temple court were three other chambers, and of course that most inner chamber was the Holy of Holies. Enter his courts with praise. You might hear this and say, well, I I, I thought he wants all the earth to worship. Uh, And how can all the earth gather on one little mountain in Jerusalem where the temple is? Uh, 7.7 billion people would not fit there, okay? Just to to be clear. Uh, Actually, a group of us were on the Temple Mount and we kind of walked around there. You might be able to fit 10,000 people. That's about the max in that tiny, in that area. There's no way you're going to fit 7.7 billion people. So what's he talking about? I think he's being more prophetic than perhaps he realized here. The temple is where God dwells. Actually, the temple, the first temple, arguably, is the Garden of Eden, where God and mankind walked together. Then the the tabernacle, which was basically a, a big, large tent, followed Israel throughout the desert for 40 years. And that was the dwelling place of God with his people. Finally, Solomon takes it and turns it into a permanent structure right there on the top of Mount Zion, uh, right there in Jerusalem. And that becomes the place for worship. All the sacrifices, prayers were offered there, incense was offered there. The priests all worked there. In fact, it was considered a great sin to set up a separate temple anywhere else in Israel. But Babylon comes and destroys that temple, exiles the people. Eventually, we see this in Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild that temple. And actually, they rebuild it, and it's a much smaller, less impressive temple than Solomon. I like what it says. It says that the the young people rejoiced when they saw the finished product, and the older people cried and wept because it was nothing like the previous temple that they remembered. Later on, Herod takes that temple. So that would begin Second Temple Judaism, if you ever heard that terminology. When that second temple is built, he takes it and he turns it into this massive, beautiful structure, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, this glorious place. That would have been the temple that Jesus was familiar with. 
uh, Jesus would have worshipped there himself. Uh, that wall that you see on the picture behind me is, of course, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall. It's one piece of one wall that survived with Herod's temple. So Jesus would have seen that wall. A funny little side story. Neil Armstrong was uh, visited uh, Jerusalem. Neil Armstrong, the man who went to the moon. And he said, is there any place we can go that we know for certain Jesus himself stood? And his guide said, yes, actually we do. Uh, one of the entrances to the temple uh, still has the original stone on the ground. Uh, and we know that Jesus definitely would have went to worship there. Uh, so he took Neil, the guide took Neil Armstrong to the stone. And Neil Armstrong stood on the stone. Actually, I've stood on it. Others here, I think, have stood on it as well. Uh, and, we, and he said that, uh, the guide said, we know for certain that Jesus himself would have stood on that very stone because he would have entered the temple through this gate. And Neil Armstrong said, and I don't even know where he's at in terms of his faith, he said, standing on this stone is more impressive to me than standing on the moon. Isn't that interesting? This is the temple where God dwelt. But here's the neat thing about Jesus. Jesus said, he's the temple. To destroy this temple, three days, I'll, rise it, I'll raise it again. What's he talking about? It says specifically, he wasn't talking about the big, giant building. He was talking about himself. The temple is where God dwells on earth. Yes, God dwells everywhere, but there is a unique and special sense in which he dwells in one place. And Jesus says, he's that place in his incarnated, incarnated um, presence with us in his ministry. Jesus dies. He rises from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. And then we read throughout the New Testament, where's the temple now? Paul tells us this. Peter tells us this, that the church, the people of God gathered together is the temple. And that you guys, <laughs> each are the stones that make up that temple. Uh, it's not a physical building. I'm not talking about this huge, beautiful sanctuary. Uh, I'm talking about the individual believers who gather together, whether that's in a home, or in a huge building, or in a huge cathedral, it's the people, the congregation, who are that dwelling place of God. I think that makes sense when you come back to our text here. How could all the earth be drawn in to worship in the temple? Because God's plan is to see God's people gathered in worship all throughout this planet. In fact, this is the strategy, and, and, and John talked about this in his presentation. The strategy is to reach native people in the country we're trying to reach them. And what do they do there? They start to gather. They form a church. And eventually we say, you guys are on your own. We're trusting the Holy Spirit to lead you guys. And they start sending out missionaries as well. And, and onward, God's plan is to bring people in community with each other. And I just encourage you, friends, that the church, uh, the people of God, is where God uniquely dwells. He dwells everywhere. When you're alone, he's with you. I'm not saying that in, in the least, that he's any less with you, but there is something special about God's gathered people. Uh, I've said this before, but it's worth repeating that the, the best place for a new Christian to be uh, is with a church family, and perhaps the most dangerous place for them to be is alone. Uh, it's an old illustration, but it's, it still rings true. If you take a coal out of a fire and you place it two feet away, the coal will quickly burn out. How do you get it started again? Pretty simple. Take the coal, don't use your hands. <laughs> Take the coal, throw it back in the, with the other coals, and you'll see it ignite again. Uh, God calls us to worship together. There's something special 
about his presence and his work when we join together and we worship. Worship all the earth. Worship in the temple, which I think here refers to God's people gathered together as the church. And worship him. Give thanks to him for his love. For his love. Look at the end of verse 4. Give thanks to him. Be grateful to him. He's the object of our thanksgiving. Bless his name. What does that mean to bless God? Usually we think blessings come downward, right? God blesses us. What does it mean to bless God? I think it means uh, to recognize him, to be who he is, to praise him for who he is, to give thanks to him for who he is. Bless his name. And it says in verse 5, 4, I told you before that word for means in support of what I'm saying. Uh, For what? For the Lord is good. Good as opposed to evil. (laughs) Uh, With God, there is no impurity. There is no imperfection. There is nothing dark. There is nothing bad. The Lord is good. And his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. That word, two words, steadfast love, I want to focus on for just a minute here. Actually, it's one word in the Hebrew. And I don't always like to point out the Hebrew. It it can make it sound more confusing. I don't mean to do that. But uh, the word there is chesed. Chesed. It's got that strong sort of H sound, chesed. And uh, we see it all over the Bible. And chesed, sometimes it's translated as, as love or faithfulness or something like that. The psalm that, that Pastor Mike read earlier or had us do a responsive reading with uses that word over and over, chesed. And what is chesed? What does it mean? Uh, well, it, it kind of means love, um, but not love as sometimes we think of it. We think of love, we think of uh, Sort of, you know, it can kind of waver. It has its highs and its lows. Very emotional. Uh, we say, you know, in our culture, I, you know, I'm not in love with you anymore. And that means the, you know, relationship needs to end or something like that. I mean, love has, has these sort of weird connotations for us. So what the English translators did, they put the word steadfast in front of it. That's probably a good idea. It's not just love, it's, it's steadfast love. It's love that doesn't waver. But here's really what's behind this word. It's covenant love. God chose a people for himself. And God will never, ever, ever break his promises. And the way he relates to his people is through chesed, is that covenant, committed, deep, steadfast love. I, I like the word covenant because we don't use it too often. Um, I mean, when you think about it, what do we use the word covenant for? We might talk about a church covenant. Even that's kind of fell, fallen out of usage. Uh, we do have a church covenant. Actually, our church covenant is beautiful, and we still use it actively. We ask our new members to, to read it and to sign it, uh, but it's still not used often. Uh, the, the most common place for it to be used is marriage, right? Marriage. So I, I thought of the last wedding I did. Liga's not here today. Liga and Brian aren't here today. Um, but I literally just took this picture and stole it from her Facebook page. So that's where I got this from. Uh, but I was, I was blessed to, to officiate over uh, their wedding. What is a marriage? A marriage is more than just love. And you could say, well, we're, we love each other, but we're not married. That, that's true. It, it's covenant love. It's commitment uh, it's, it's steadfastness. It's, we're going to go through ups, life's ups and downs together. Uh, 
That's what a marriage covenant is. When God says to us, or the psalmist tells us to praise God and be thankful to God for his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness. Friends, it's a love that never gives up. That never leaves you or forsakes you. It's a love that endures forever, as he says, to all generations. Here we are, well over 2,000 years uh, after this was written and still reading it and thinking it and praying it for ourselves. God is in covenant commitment to you. He would as, as soon break his covenant with the day, the rising of the sun and its setting, than break his covenant with you. And friends, most of you know this, and if you don't, and even if you do, it's worth hearing again. We see the climax of this covenant love in the gift of God's own son, Jesus, for our sin. God loves his people, but there's a problem. <laughs> and that problem is our sin. And God is a just God, and he's a fair God, and he's a holy God. Uh, you know, when I, sometimes you hear people say, God's like a big teddy bear who just has this overwhelming, abundant sort of uh, love for us. I say that's true. It's true, but let's put that in its right context. He's also sovereign and holy and just, and he will not overlook sin. And if you read scripture, you cannot get around the fact that God is a God who is all-powerful and is not happy about sin and brings harsh judgment against it. So what does he do with those people whom he's in covenant love with? He provides a way out. He provides a mediator, a sacrifice. He provides a savior. And he gives us Jesus. Jesus is, in a sense, friends, his covenant signed in blood. Friends, this, this, this uh, Thanksgiving, uh, if you're giving thanks for the food, I hope you are. I uh, hope you're giving thanks for your family, uh, giving thanks for your friends and whoever is maybe coming over your house. Uh, giving thanks for your house and for the, you know, the, the, the weather and for living in the best state in the Union, by the way, Massachusetts. Well, some of you guys are from New Hampshire, so the two best, the two best states in the Union. If you're giving thanks to God for uh, all, of, all that he provides, I, don't, I can go on and on about all that he's given, but you, you miss this, <laughs> to give thanks to God for his covenant love, that he loves you, he's purchased you in Christ, and he will never, ever, ever give up on you. That you've missed the greatest thing for us to be thankful for. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, all the earth. Give thanks to the Lord in his temple, in his courts, which I mean, I think, believe, I, I believe refers to today, spiritually, in his church. And give thanks to the Lord for his covenant love. The opposite of gratitude, of course, is ingratitude. Thomas Adams, an early Puritan, said, Unthankfulness is the witch, the sorceress, whose drowsy enchantments have made us even forget God himself. <laughs> we are called to gratitude. God has wired us in such a way 
that he wants us to be grateful. And there's an object to that gratitude, and that's God. Uh, yes, we should be thankful for a lot of things. Uh, if you're married, be thankful for your spouse, for sure. If you got kids, be thankful for your kids or your grandkids. Be thankful for your parents or your grandparents. Be thankful for your siblings, and certainly be thankful for your friends. Uh, be thankful for the country you live in. Be thankful for those who are, uh, for, the, for our, our police officers and our firemen and our first responders and our, our hospital, our doctors and our nurse practitioners and our nurses. And be thankful certainly for those who have served our country in the military and are serving our country. And be thankful for this great nation that we get to live in. And be thankful to a lot of people and a lot of things. But above all of that, friends, Let's be thankful to the creator of everything who loves us enough to make us his own and provides for us every good thing. Let's pray. Well, our great and our gracious God, thank you so much for your word that, that calls us to praise and calls us to joyful celebration and calls us to thanksgiving and gratitude. And thank you, Lord, that as our creator, you have made us and wired us in such a way that we need to be thankful. That's actually good for our very souls and our bodies and our minds, Lord, to revisit your blessings again and again and be thankful. Lord, we do look forward to the day when all of your people from every tongue and tribe and nation will be gathered in glory surrounding the Lamb of God and the one sitting on the throne and will praise you for all eternity. But until that day, Lord, until that day, help us to worship you with thanksgiving in our hearts in the diversity of ways in which you enable us to give thanks. Help us to worship you in your courts, Lord, as we gather together as your people. And Lord, help us with gratitude in our hearts to worship you for your chesed, your covenant faithfulness and love towards us, your people, that you have purchased through your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.